I mean, we need stress <laughs> to, uh, to survive, actually. I mean, there's, right, and I mentioned kind of eustress, which is, you know, obviously good to us, right? Like, it's good when things happen, even if that causes things to change. But even stress that we experience as negative, right, like some kind of negative emotional experience isn't necessarily bad. Welcome to Ethics at Work, a podcast where educators at Notre Dame discuss questions of meaning, purpose, and value in the context of our working lives. I'm Paul Blaschko. I'm Megan Levis. And I'm Walter Shire. And today we're joined by Dr. Laura Graff, Associate Professor of Psychology and Peace Studies here at Notre Dame. She's passionate about understanding how various systems interact to promote or inhibit healthful development following violence exposure, primarily in children. Laura, you and I have known each other for a while, uh, at least since I was a, a graduate student here at Notre Dame, and there's various connections. Do you remember how we first met? Um, I think we met through your wife, I'm pretty sure, but I don't actually know the first time I met you or where that would have been. That would make a lot of sense. Shayla is my connection to the outside yeah. world. Uh, that's great. Uh, and over the years, we've had some good conversations about uh, social science, psychology. Obviously, I'm coming from a philosophical perspective. Uh, and today, we want to bring some of those to bear on these questions about work, well-being, the workplace. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump right in. So lots of us are looking to improve our well-being, both at work and outside of it. Uh, but from a psychological perspective, what does this even mean? Psychologists actually use it to mean a lot of different things. <laughs> Psychology, by and large, at least in current day, um, is a very quantitative field. So a lot of times any given you know, piece of research or study that focuses on well-being really defines it in pretty specific terms, depending on how it's measured. So some of the things that psychologists might measure relative to well-being are things like life satisfaction or happiness or, you know, a general sense of, you know, positive affect um, or satisfaction. And other psychologists, you know, really would also include something like the absence of negative emotions, right? So that part of well-being is not just feeling good, but also not feeling bad. I think over time, psychologists have really kind of moved to understanding that good and bad feelings can, you know, coexist and often do. And so there is kind of this movement, and I would say this is particularly driven by work in resilience, to think about, you know, how we really deepen our understanding of, of how the good and the bad go together, right? You know, it can be true that you're satisfied with your life and you're also experiencing some symptoms of, say, depression. And how do we kind of make, make sense of that? It's super interesting. So as a philosopher, you know, one of the things that strikes me is doing well, or if I'm thinking about the good life, uh, I'm getting really in the weeds and sketching out a very substantive account. And a lot of times this requires us to uh, bring to bear presuppositions about human nature, about the kind of creatures that we are. Uh, and some of these are, are really controversial. I guess one thing I'm wondering is, you know, how does psychology navigate some of those questions Especially given that, you know, as you're saying, uh, it's a quantitative discipline or a lot of times you're, you're taking a quantitative approach. 
And it seems like things can get really messy really fast if we're asking, you know, about human nature uh, and really high level questions. So wondering if you could kind of talk us through, you know, how, how psychology approaches some of those issues. I think there's this is kind of unhelpful, but there's there's pretty wide variation right across psychology in terms of the roots or the maybe like philosophical or theoretical underpinnings of how people think about well-being. So you see, for example, like in the psychological research that looks at character um, and character development, like a pretty strong connection to Aristotelian perspectives on on character. And certainly, I think the way psychologists study it is different than how philosophers might think about it. But, you know, that isn't necessarily reflected in work more broadly. But you also have, right, kind of partnered with work on well-being, work in something like flourishing, right? So what does it really mean to like excel or, you know, have a rich human life and that draws from still other theoretical perspectives. So again, I think, I think there's variation and I mean, it speaks to the importance, right, of, of interdisciplinarity and, and psychologists working not just within our own methods, but partnering with other disciplines to kind of figure out how the, the research that we're doing kind of partners with some of the broader kind of philosophical questions that we're interested in testing. So coming back to how psychology is practiced today, it really is a science, right? Yeah, yes. Psychology very much kind of takes the hypothesis testing approach, right? So we're working through kind of different theoretical frameworks and advancing, you know, specific ways to test our hypotheses about them. And again, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of that is done Although there's certainly more and more you're seeing kind of a broadening or an expansion of lots of different diverse methods of analysis, right? So we're gathering biological data or observational data. You know, there's tons of great work in neuroscience, right? So there's a lot of movement towards kind of integration of, of those methods into kind of complex you know, quantitative models that help us test some of those core theories. Continuing on this conversation about psychology and well-being, are there like particular methods that people kind of use and have developed to improve their mental and emotional well-being, particularly at work? And do you have an idea of what some of the biggest obstacles might be? It's important to recognize that any you know, psychological experience, well-being included, right, your, your experience of well-being is going to be determined by many different factors, right? So your genetic, your unique genetic makeup, you know, your social system outside of work, your experience within work. So there's no one thing, right, where it's like, oh, if you do X or if this is true, right, your well-being is going to be good or bad. But that said, I think, you know, one of the biggest or most consistent obstacles we see, you know, in cropping up again and again across research studies is stress. So stress makes it more likely that people will experience, you know, different forms of ill mental health, but will also likely reduce their sense of well-being as well. And I think it's important to recognize, right, there's a really kind of enormous range of stress. So we have stress that would be considered like you stress, which was me like good stress, right? Where it's like you get promoted at work and there are some stressful experiences that come around that you're in transition, you're learning new things. You might have to get to know a new boss, but on the whole, you feel good about it, right? Even though it's, it's a big change. And then you have like 
normal daily stress, right? Like I'm running late and my car is out of gas. Um, and then you would have things that we would consider to be more, you know, toxic levels of stress or adversity that, you know, have a more significantly profound negative impact on your well-being. One of the things that I'm wondering about is obviously, you know, some of these obstacles, some of these things, they're very particular to the individual, you know, the way that I process my job or the way that I process relationships with my colleagues. Some of them are more systematic though, right? So if I'm in a toxic work environment, I guess it doesn't matter how good I am at, at you know, breathing or meditating or whatever. I'm just, I'm going to be stressed out. It's going to be awful. And one of the things that as a philosopher, I think about is kind of the the ethics of approaching these issues differently. If if we've got a toxic work environment, it seems like, well, the answer shouldn't be to say, well, individuals should go, you know, take a therapeutic approach or, you know, figure it out on their own. I mean, I'm sure there's awareness of these issues. Is Are there ways that psychologists think about or analyze uh, the individual factors versus these more sort of social dynamics, collective factors? So it seems like that, that just introduces a whole other host of, of messy issues. I apologize because I forgot to answer the first part of your question, which is kind of approaches in the workplace. I mean, and I think, Paul, you know, you're really kind of tapping into it in the sense that, you know, psychologists and a lot of certainly kind of stress management interventions or um, kind of resilience focused interventions that have been used and evaluated in the workplace are very focused on individuals management of stress, right? So like, How can we help you when you're experiencing something stressful, manage that better, right? Through changing how you're thinking about it, giving you some coping tools. And at some level, you're right, Paul, in that a lot of our stresses are individual to us, right? Like there are things that are happening in our day. There are things that we could do to kind of make our experience of the world more pleasant, right? In in how we think about it or how we engage. But at the same time, it can also be true that a lot of the stressors are coming from problems that kind of live outside of us. And there is a framework that originated in a a field called developmental psychology called the social ecological model. So it's basically the idea, right, that we're not individuals floating out in space on our own, unaffected by other things, right? We're living in kind of a series of nested environments, right? And those environments have influences on us and we have influences on those environments, right? So we're not just affected by our workplace, we also affect our workplace and our coworkers. And so there is definitely, I think, as as a part of that, and certainly kind of in the research on, um, you know, stress in the workplace more broadly, greater attention that, needs to be given, and I think is being given in in some work, right, to, you know, what kinds of organizational changes do we need to make to make the workplace a good place to be, right? Because certainly, you know, if you don't make those organizational changes, right, it's going to be broadly more challenging for people that you're working with to thrive in that environment. Yeah, so you just mentioned a couple of the different sources of stress, but I'm also interested in returning a little bit. You made a comment about different types of stress and how some stress might be good, some stress maybe not so good. So is stress always something that's bad? Uh, no. I mean, we need stress <laughs> to uh, to survive, actually. 
I mean, there's, right, and I mentioned kind of eustress, which is, you know, obviously good to us, right? Like it's good when things happen, even if that causes things to change. But even stress that we experience as negative, right, like some kind of negative emotional experience isn't necessarily bad. So, you know, the example that I often give to students is, you know, if you're really stressed out about an upcoming exam, right, that might be an unpleasant experience for you to feel that way. But if you experience no stress prior to an exam, the consequence would probably be that you would not study for that exam, right? So stress motivates some important behaviors in our life related to both performance, but also, you know, like our, our social experiences. So for example, right, if you had no stress about, you know, hurting people's feelings or, you know, how you affected other people in your work environment, you would probably be kind of rude sometimes, right? And, and walk away from that. So there's, there's definitely a really important adaptive and functional role of stress. But, right, there are lots of stressors. And when we think about certainly, you know, high magnitude stressors, right, that are not going to be adaptive, like they're just difficult and, and harmful for people. And that's really where we need to be kind of directing our kind of attention and support. This is an interesting idea to me that not all stress is bad. Um, in, you know, in self-help work, you want to cultivate good stress and not the bad. Uh, and it's something I've been thinking about as I've worked through uh, different challenges with the team here at Ethics at Work. Uh, so I'm curious, how do you encourage growth without overwhelming folks in the workplace? There are certainly challenges, again, to kind of making you know broad recommendations or kind of maxims about that, in part because we don't really have the complete picture of people's lives, right? And so I, I actually think that's just important to keep in mind, right, is that you know, when we're interacting with people in the workplace or, you know, students in our classrooms, we don't often know what's going on and what kinds of stress or challenges they're encountering, you know, outside of, of our interactions with them. But I mean, that said, right, there's lots to draw from in terms of, you know, how we can make kind of a supportive work environment, right? And I think some of the things that, you know, are really useful and supportive in those environments are things like really clear communication and clear performance expectations, right? Um, so making sure that, again, you know, in our workplaces or, or with our students, they have a good understanding of what we're expecting from them and that, that we're good partners in that, right? So again, thinking back to that kind of social ecological dynamic systems type model, that it's about kind of an exchange, right? Um, it's not just kind of top down or solely the responsibility of the individual, but we're really kind of all, all taking part in that. Let's take a quick break. Want to learn more about Ethics at Work? Find us at ethicsatwork.nd.edu. Welcome back to Ethics at Work. Let's continue chatting with Laura Miller-Graff, faculty in Notre Dame Psychology and Peace Studies. So you have mentioned resilience already in this podcast, and I know that that is very much related to your work. 
A question that we have is whether these conditions are something that our culture, perhaps even the culture surrounding some particular activity like work, can play a part in. So can our cultural attitudes towards work play a part in our individual and collective mental health, particularly as we're thinking about themes relating to resilience? I mean, I think it's important, and I'll just recognize at the outset, that research and resilience is really focused on the management of what would be considered significant adversity. So when we talk about re resilience, usually we're not referring to you know people's ability to manage those low-level daily stressors necessarily, right? We're talking about something a little bit larger in magnitude. That said, there's certainly a lot of parallels across the resilience literature and the literature on well-being and positive development, things like that, that I think we can draw from. You know, when we think about cultural influences or kind of broader influences on resilience, it, there's a few, I think, important things to note. So one is that we think about, you know, what helps people do well after experiencing, you know, a really significant adversity, right? That is, again, a mix of resources across systems, right? So all of these, you know, your interpersonal relationships matter, the culture and by extension, right, culture of the workplace absolutely matters, right? And can facilitate supports after stressors. I think another really important component, though, to, to recognize is, you know, the question of resources, right? There's a big stream of contemporary work on resilience that is focused on resource and, resource and asset access. And the basic premise is that, you know, individuals are naturally motivated, right? We were naturally motivated to develop well <laughs> um, in some ways, right? Ann Mastin, who's a psychologist, calls it ordinary magic. So this is something that we're kind of seeking in our lives. But a lot of times in the aftermath of stress, that is, you know, there are barriers to that that are real and that are related to resource access. And they're not related to the person's ability to actually thrive if they had all of the appropriate resources to do so. Right. So, for example, right, if you need money, right, to do something and you don't have money, that's really not a reflection on your individual capability or ability to thrive after a difficult event. It's, it's a function of your environment that you aren't getting the resources that you need to do well. And so, you know, when we think about, again, kind of back to the intervention question, right, we really need to think about, you know, both end approaches where we're putting all of the structures and systems in place to get people what they need, you know, to make sure that our workplaces are equitable and to give people essentially the opportunity, right, to pursue their own health. So let me take us in a bit of a different direction. At the beginning of the podcast, you had mentioned interdisciplinarity and the importance of working across disciplines. And so one thing I'm wondering is, you know, can you give us an example of either an issue or maybe a, a whole set of issues uh, where you think it's really important to be communicating from different parts of the university, from different parts of academia. Maybe you've done some of this work uh, on your own, or maybe you've seen some really effective work, but what is what is the role of, of that sort of communication across disciplines in addressing some of the issues that we've been talking about? From a research standpoint, and I mean, I mean, I'm thinking maybe of, you know, some of the research I've done in resilience specifically, right? Different disciplines bring their own unique methods and tools and approaches to answering, you know, the big questions. And so I think there is certainly 
a lot to be gained from even just learning how people think about the big questions, right? And the type of knowledge that kind of is generated by different types of inputs, essentially, right? Like, so, you know, an anthropologist is going to think about resilience differently than I do, right? And they would go about studying it in a, in a different way. But I think bringing all of that together gives us, a, you know, a much more rich and holistic picture of, of what these constructs really are, right? Because we are multidimensional, complicated beings. And at some level, you know, bringing together different disciplinary insights helps us capture that better. Yeah, that's wonderful. The one question that I have that I was thinking about, especially as you were talking about kind of resilience and in particular thinking about it in terms of like trauma, you mentioned that there's like a difference between kind of these big traumatic events versus sort of like the smaller trauma that happens at work. One way that I've heard that described is like big T trauma and little T trauma. Is that something that you've like heard before? Is that like a helpful way of thinking about it? Because I feel like that helps me sort of like see the ways in which the big T trauma sort of interventions might apply to like smaller T traumas. When people say trauma, they mean a lot of different things. And psychologists actually mean something really specific when we say trauma. For the most part, psychologists, when we refer to something as traumatic, means that it is an event that is essentially a significant threat to your physical integrity or life as an individual. So these would be like big, scary life events, like getting in a car accident, right? Or experiencing abuse, right? So these are kind of things that really kind of compromise our physical integrity. Now, trauma can include, and psychologists would definitely include witnessed events. So it's not something that has to happen necessarily directly to you. But a lot of times, you know, when we're thinking about it, we're thinking about it as events that could potentially result in the manifestation of something like a post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Right? So that they're linked to a particular kind of complex of symptoms. Now, of course, everybody who has experienced trauma does not go on to experience post-traumatic stress disorder. In fact, it's only the minority of people who have experienced trauma that do. And trauma in, you know, in the United States and, and globally is actually quite prevalent, right? So even though it's very serious, it's not, unfortunately, as if it is very rare. Psychologists then kind of use the term adversity to capture a broader net of events. And I would say the definition of what resilience researchers would call like significant adversity is pretty fuzzy, but usually we're talking about pretty significant and persistent life challenges that again, like go pretty far above and beyond, you know, what we would expect people or hope that people, that's probably the better way to put it, hope that people would experience in their day-to-day -day lives. So for example, right, like growing up in poverty would be considered significant adversity, right? Like losing $20 one day, would maybe be stressful for you that day, but we wouldn't consider that significant adversity, right? So stress and adversity and trauma, right, is definitely a spectrum. I would say a lot of times, actually, when people, at least on, on the peace study side of my, <laughs> of my life, refer to kind of like big T trauma, a lot of times people are referring to collective forms of trauma. 
these would be like large scale events that affect whole societies, right? Like wars, you know, significant political events that are traumatic in nature that are at some level experienced by everyone. So like September 11th, right? In the United States would be an example of that, right? Like everybody's aware of and tuned into that. And our individual experiences of that are different, but there's also kind of a collective level experience of that event. Yeah, that's such a good answer. Based off of what you said, it sounds like it might be really hard to define or even understand trauma as you're going through it, but potentially is something like this is where needing someone from the outside to be like, oh, that was a traumatic event, especially if it's something that you're like personally going through rather than something like 9-11, which like I think clearly all of us (laughs) knew going through that, that that was a really big deal. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, I will say, first of all, you know, there's still contention among psychologists, right, about like where we kind of draw the lines or how we neatly define things. And it's changed over time historically, right? So that it's not as if there is a set definition. And I think it is important to recognize, particularly when we're talking about kind of these issues in the public sphere, I would say, right? Like the word trauma or stress, like those are just common words in the English language and people use them in all different sorts of ways. You know, I think as communicators about, you know, our research, we need to be really clear when we're, you know, working or, you know, speaking with the public, right, about how we're talking about them, right? So our research is kind of understood and interpreted correctly, but also be sensitive to the fact that people are bringing to those terms, right, their own assumptions and life experiences. And so when, particularly when you're talking about research and stress and adversity and trauma, right, like that means that it's received in particular ways. And I think as as a psychologist, you have to think carefully about that. So Laura, as we wrap up our podcast, we always like to ask, what's a book, podcast, or other resource that you're excited about? If our listeners want to follow up on some of what you've been talking about, where should they go to next? I would say, I mean, for people who are interested in resilience specifically, um, I know that's a very, I mean, it's certainly a big, you know, hot topic, right, in a lot of different fields, education, global development. I would really recommend Anne Mastin's book. So she has a book called Ordinary Magic that is a really excellent, I think, pretty accessible overview of, of the resilience literature. She also has an online course on Coursera that is a nice kind of, again, overview of the field. So that would be my recommendation. Laura, thanks so much for joining us today. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And we'll catch you next time on the Ethics at Work podcast.